Hello, and welcome back to The Moral Minority. This is season six, where we are discussing deconstruction. So far in this season, we've talked through plenty of angles of deconstruction, including both Josh and my own personal stories of faith transition, theological shifts, and wrestling with the big questions of spirituality. Today is a very special episode. Um, Not only do we have a very a guest that I'm really excited to talk to, um, probably one of my favorite guests of all time. But it's also the first time that I've done an in-person or in-studio podcast recording um, probably in about at least six months, if not a year, um, at least with a guest. I've I've done some with a co-host on another podcast, but I'm really excited for this. I'm, I've had to kind of scramble together to build a studio space, um, but with no... No further distractions on my end. I'd like to introduce Shane Blackshear. Shane, you may know him from the Seminary Dropout podcast. He's also um, a leader at a church in Austin called Austin Mustard Seed. And Shane has been um, having conversations about theology in the digital space, whether that be through his podcast or on Twitter. Um, he's been he's been he has done partnerships with Missio Alliance and other organizations like that. He's interviewed scholars such as N.T. Wright, um, Tim Mackey, right? You, not you not yet. He is actually, you know what? I'm glad you said that. I kind of forgot. He's on the docket for this year. He so. is on the docket. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, um, you know, Shane, I'll let you take the reins and let you introduce yourself and kind of focus on anything I missed. No, cool. Thanks, Joel. I'm super excited to be here. Um, yeah. So uh, where to start? Um, you know, I've, I've, uh, pastored churches. I'm right now. I'm on the pastoral team at Austin Mustard Seed, like you mentioned. We're a small uh, Christian community here in Austin. And about gosh, eight or nine years ago, um, I started a podcast uh, called Seminary Dropout, where I interviewed people, and um, just been extremely fortunate to interview some amazing people, like you said. Uh, so we've, we've got like, I don't know, two, uh, two somewhere in there interviews, uh, episodes. Uh, so it's been super great. Uh, I should have a book coming out later this year, maybe early next. We'll see. Um, so yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I didn't realize that about the book. I'll have to discuss that with you offline. Yeah. Um, what, you know, I recently listened to your interview with Michelle, Amy Reyes, um, she's local in Austin. I wanted to kind of hear like, Oh, what are the faith leaders in Austin who are kind of more on my end of the theological spectrum? What are they discussing? So I really enjoyed that episode in particular, um, talking about some of the work that her church is doing with the Hispanic community, um, and, and kind of those, conversations across town, which is really cool. Who have been some of your favorite people to interview? Uh, you know, you mentioned N.T. Wright. Uh, he is just a delight to interview. I mean, not only is he like, you know, one of the world's preeminent experts on the New Testament, but it, he's just um, just so easy to talk to. He loves, you can tell he really loves the conversations, even though it's, it's with me, someone who's not a fellow scholar, you know. Uh, so those are super fun. Um, you know, uh, Walter Brueggemann, some people know him and then some people like, you know, I got to talk to like John Foreman of Switchfoot, like oh, stuff, yeah. stuff like that too, that's awesome. you know, that's, uh, 
super fun. And, uh, you know, Sarah Bessie and Rachel Held Evans before she passed, those were like just super delightful to share some more in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, super fun. That's so great. Yeah, I didn't realize you interviewed John Foreman. He's definitely a childhood hero of mine. So I got to dig up that episode. Maybe I did listen. I got to. I've listened to so many podcasts at this point. They all kind of run together. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, there's a lot of them. <laughs> well, that's amazing, man. I I, uh, I have to say I'm kind of honored to be on a podcast with someone who interviewed N.T. Wright. <laughs> <laughs> like, N.T. Wright's like uh, a hero is an understatement. I, I've just like he completely expanded my understanding of Christianity when I started reading same his works um and and boy were they long <laughs> yeah reads. right yeah yeah <laughs> but i mean completely expanded my understanding of christianity and so yeah i've uh but yeah you know i've I've also been you know really um amazed by the different interviews that you've gotten and how well done they are and so it's such an honor to have you on the show i've always been curious um uh, seminary dropout is such a dope name uh, as a Bible school dropout. I respect just the, just the, the name of it. Uh, and of course, as we're kind of back in another Kanye season, as he's uh, <laughs> released his uh, biggest project in a while, um, Donda. Um, the first thing that comes to my mind as a huge hip hop fan growing up is college dropout. Were these at all, was that inspired? Was that what inspired the name? Or that would have been a cooler origin story, but unfortunately not. No, uh-huh. I, I, you know, <laughs> I remember when the album came out, but I was I was a later adopter of Kanye. So uh, no, unfortunately, <laughs> those are those are unrelated. Yeah. <laughs> well, where are you with him now? Are you still uh, do you still follow his career? Enjoy his music? I, I'm a casual listener. Yeah, gotcha. yeah. I throw him on the Spotify playlist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you, yeah. Well, at one point, you were a true that. seminary dropout. Is that correct? I mean, yeah. I guess once always, right? Unless I go back. Um, yeah, I'm, st- I'm literally <laughs> a seminary dropout. So yeah. Yeah, I guess well, that- I'm, I'm outnumbered here. I haven't even attempted a seminary, <laughs> so I'm I'm really behind you two. Yeah, you just well, Joe, it's you pretty got easy book. to drop out, you know. Yeah, I was about to say you got the books. You're good, man. You're you're uh, you're. <laughs> we're, no one's elite because they go to seminary, which actually is a perfect segue to to my first question. Is um, this isn't really on the deconstruction angle, but because I enjoy the podcast and enjoy the fact that it's actually fairly academic. Like you mentioned, you 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 interview a good bit of academics. Um, yet, um, you yourself, you know, um, because you're a seminary dropout, um, would not like classify as an academic. Of course, I don't even think you classify yourself as that. And so I, I've personally always been a huge fan of us kind of, um, uh, doing a couple things, holding two things in balance, like one, appreciating scholars, appreciating all of the work and the, di- and the due diligence that they do to get us amazing theology and amazing content, but never thinking that there's some kind of like elite status of Christianity um, and always remembering that it was actually Jesus who said um, it, it's, it's going to come from places where you don't expect the wisdom and the revelation of who the father is and, and what the kingdom is like. 
And so uh, was that also kind of like uh, an idea or a thought behind um, the nature of the podcast? Yeah, and it has increasingly more become that. So like, you know, we we joked about the name Seminary Dropout was like part of it that was wanting it to be a metaphor of uh, being like talking about these uh, with these scholarly authors about the real hard work they were doing, uh, but not, but getting it accessible to everybody. And Mm. I think for me, I think for a lot of people, there's this idea that the Christian scholars or the biblical scholars or the theological scholars, they're kind of just like debating how many angels can fit on the head of a needle, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's not been my experience at all. When I talk to them and when I read their books, I realize that this stuff is super important mm-hmm. and, and kind of foundational to to Christianity. And I think we're about to talk about deconstruction. I think part of why people hit deconstruction so hard is because the Christian bookstore top 10 book list is not doing it for them anymore. Oh, yeah. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the like celebrity preacher book isn't doing it for mm-hmm. them anymore. And the answers aren't helping there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're coming away empty handed. And, and, and the problem with that is that, uh, there's this illusion that that's all Christianity has to offer. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause, cause I don't want to like make this person the punching bag, but like, you know, because Joel Olstein doesn't have, uh, the answers I'm looking for. Christianity must not have anything for me, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh my gosh, there's a whole wide world out there. And not only is there a whole wide world of, you know, modern Christian academia, but we've got um, thousands of years of people who are yeah. answering these questions. We've, I don't want to go far, too far into it because we're probably going to get into it later, but <laughs> we're not the first to ask these questions. Oh, absolutely. Right. right 100%. And, and yeah, I mean, we're here, so we might as well do it. But like, I think I think you're you're spot on, and 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 we'll get to like your like um, maybe personal experience, maybe either with deconstruction or like with people who deconstructed. But I was really actually just thinking about that today. Um, I was because I so you know I've said this a lot on this podcast, but uh, maybe about two or three years back, I started listening to a lot of political commentary from atheists and agnostics or you know proclaimed atheists and agnostics and um i honestly really just did it because i wanted to learn more about politics and i just felt like i wasn't really getting much from the people i was listening to or from the kind of uh more um more obvious media spaces and one of the constant critiques that they have of christianity although they're much more nuanced than people believe they don't um, they don't have the very simplistic critiques that a lot of people think that they do of Christianity. But one of the constant ones it's, is the anti-intellectualism of mm-hmm. Christianity. And I'm always just like, oh, if only you knew. Yeah, <laughs> like the content is just everywhere. But, but you made a point just now that maybe that is a huge piece of why people end up in a space of deconstruction. You mind elaborating on that just a little bit real quick? Yeah, sure. So I think that I've noticed that a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people who are kind of stuck in endless loops of deconstruction, they come from kind of fundamentalist churches Mm -hmm. 
backgrounds. And so part of what happens in a fundamentalist church is, is they say, here's, here's what the truth is. And, and we represent true Christianity. Here's the truth. And this truth is what true Christianity is. Mm -hmm. And so part of the problem is that people believe that. So, so when they say, when they find out, they go out into the wider world and say, Ooh, I think that truth is flawed. What they're saying is in their heads are true Christianity is flawed. Right. And, and so, uh, you know, there, there's a huge problem there because they think that their church experience is the whole of Christianity. They think that this church that they grew up in, in the late 1900s or early 2000s in the South or, you know, wherever they are, right? Their rural community or wherever they are, they think that was true Christianity and they're missing out on the, the global church, the church around the world, the multi-ethnic movement. And then, like I said earlier, 2,000 years of every kind of context around the world, you know, mostly made up of, of people of color and people who are not wealthy. Like uh, there's a whole different um, faith out there, expression of Christianity that people know nothing about and they're rejecting Christianity because the one the the one little speck of Christianity they experienced didn't do it for them, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. You know, Shane, I'm curious if any part of what you just said, which I would wholeheartedly agree with, and I think we've discussed to some degree earlier on the podcast in this series, I'm curious if that resonates with your personal experience. Um, as far as you're comfortable, like how did you start thinking about theology in fresh ways? And how did you, why, why did you think that this was, something that you wanted to not only engage with personally, but also engage with online and in all these other spaces. Yeah. Well, can we, can we go like way back and yeah. I'll, I'll start? Okay. So, so I, I grew up in church, a pretty conservative expression of Christianity in a small town, um, you know, at least borderline on fundamentalism, if not full on fundamentalism. Uh, but the difference was it was actually a pretty loving place. Like I felt loved there. And so like, I think that's why I hesitate to say it was full on fundamentalism. Cause mm -hmm. I think that that's actually like part of the definition of fundamentalism is like, you don't feel loved there. Um, but anyway, so, um, I remember I was 12 and I don't know what, like looking at back at it as a adult, I have a feeling it had just something to do with, um, the changes to our brains when we're that age, mm -hmm. when we're becoming a, a teenager, you know, an adolescent and uh, started having all of these doubts about, oh, I don't know if this is real. And, and it was terrifying because I also thought that if I, if I doubted that it was real, that I was going to lose my salvation mm -hmm. and go to hell for all eternity. Right. So, I mean, that's like, that's some real kind of torture, you know, like psychological torture, just like fear and, um, and the worry that comes along with that. And I eventually got on the other side of that. I can't, I don't exactly know why, but I think other than, than just the presence of God meeting me where I was, you know, uh, but it was still a pretty uh, naive faith. Um, fast forward to when I'm 18 and I go to college and I even, I went to a, a Christian university. It wasn't, there wasn't external forces 
and and the same thing when I was 12. It, there was nothing external that was going on. It was all inside my brain. Mm. So again, 18 years old, it was kind of the same thing over over again, just uh, doubts. And, and at that time, I wasn't so worried about going to hell, but, uh, well, I don't know if this is all real. And um, I actually remember... Uh, then I actually did encounter some like apologetics type stuff. Mm-hmm. And and what's funny about that is that uh, now I look at those apologetics and I think that was kind of weak, you know, mm-hmm. that was kind of like mm-hmm. pop psychology <laughs> stuff. Um, <laughs> but at the time, again, I think God at least used that to meet me there. And I, you know, it, my faith survived. And so ever since then, I've never had a time exactly like those two times uh, where it was like super fear inducing and, um, you know, just a lot of worry and stress. And it's kind of like, I, I know a lot of people who, for whom at, at, in their adult years, it was like that. Um, uh, it, it, Aaron Nequist wrote a book and he's got a story much like that. Like he was like really on the end of his rope and somebody uh, introduced him to the divine conspiracy mm-hmm. by Dallas Willard. And, mm-hmm. and, there are a lot of people for whom that exact story is is their story. Mm. Like specifically, the Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard, like save their faith, you know. Yeah. And they were at the end of the rope. This is the metaphor I have, and it's not the best metaphor, so bear with me. But they were at the end of the rope, and someone came along and said, "Hey, here's another length of rope." Right. You know. So they had yeah. something else to grab onto, and they weren't, uh, you know, just teetering on the edge. Um, for me, a lot of times it's been, I've got plenty of rope. I'm not at the end of my rope. And somebody walks up to me and says, Hey, here's the length of rope. I know you don't need it now, but you'll need it. At some point this will come in handy. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how it's happened to me now where, and, and I, I I'm like, let's prefer that way, right? Like let's yeah. not wait till we're desperate. But um, so along the way, and honestly, I've had the benefit of doing a podcast where I interview authors all the time, right? So I have this motivation, but there are so many books and we can talk about that in a little bit that, but that I've read and I've thought, oh man, that was so good. And later on something happened and I needed that length of rope, Mm -hmm. right? Like that, that was what uh, sustained me and, and helped me there. So Can can you give us an example of maybe one of those instances yeah, so I talk about it all the time. Um, Greg Boyd's Benefit of the Doubt mm-hmm. has been like so foundational to me. Um, that book and, and all of my friends who are going through deconstruction, like my advice is like, hey, um, you're not allowed to lose your faith until you read The Benefit of the Doubt. Like read <laughs> nice. this book. If you want to walk away, cool. Like that's totally fine. But um, I I just cannot recommend that enough. But it, And it just helped me. It reframed faith for me uh, forever. Like I will, I will never, um, I don't think I'll, I'll ever be able to have that kind of fear-induced doubt Mm. that I that I had had at 12 and 18 because of the way that that book framed uh, faith for me and um, the love of God for me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And, and then there's a lot of other things along the way. Like, you, um, uh, Josh, you talked about N.T. Wright and, like, what that had meant for you and opening your eyes. And, like, just in general, even though it's not about faith or even salvation, having a more robust theology of Christianity mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't make me susceptible to like every uh, dude on YouTube who is, you know, is an atheist and thinks Christianity is stupid. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I-, I can look at it and I can say, well, if I if I thought Christianity is what you think it is, I would also think that's stupid. Yeah. And it's not threatening to me. You right. know, like that's great. Like you're you're not mad at my Christianity because you're talking about something else. And so it's not it's not personal. And I don't need to have doubts because of that thing you said, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I can resonate so much with that. I think in my own story, um, I think when it turned from that season of despair to like a season of um, getting more rope was really when I began reading biblical scholars. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd never been exposed to biblical scholarship. I had been exposed to pastors and, you know, people who write books that are in Christian bookstores. Um, and maybe, you know, there's the celebrity pastor. And, and then I'd also been exposed to apologetics, which is quite different. Apologists are usually not trained in biblical scholarship. They're more right. they're more like maybe they come from all sorts of backgrounds, maybe philosophy or the sciences or um, some or pastorship. And then they're really a trained debater or a trained public speaker. Yeah, that's right. More than a trained scholar. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and apologists kind of have an agenda like they're trying to win an argument but scholars are just trying to find the truth yeah and that resonated with me yeah. so much more um i think maybe it's because i'm i uh, really like to keep the peace i really like friendly dialogue i'm <laughs> sure. not a debater i'm not com- like super competitive when it comes to like winning people over yeah i really want people to just explore and learn i love learning so when i was able to learn from biblical scholars that changed the game for me it really Early on, it was a lot of Preston Sprinkle and Tim Mackey. Yeah, yeah. And then I got into N.T. Wright. Um, and then read others like John Walton. And Yeah, no, totally. And I resonate, excuse me, I resonate with what you're saying about uh, apologists. And I, I think there's certainly a place for that. In fact, like uh, David Bentley Hart wrote a, a book, and I cannot think of the name of it, um, but it was kind of his apologetics and he was kind of responding to like the new atheists, mm-hmm. um, the Dawkins and I can't think of, you know, but those guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was really great and it was really helpful. Uh, so I'm not, it's not, there's a place for apologetics, mm-hmm. but I think you're right. I think a lot of them are, um, they're more about winning an argument than showing some truth, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And then, and then also I think some of them are just really um so counterproductive. Um, I I don't know if you guys are on TikTok, and I I am. I don't recommend it. It's like a real cesspool. <laughs> but um, I this guy kept coming across my timeline. Who was some guy I'd never heard of him before. But he would like go to college campuses in their like courtyards and start debating students. You know, and it's just like the tone that he was taking. And there's so many. There, there are tons of arguments where I thought like I mean you're. I think the guy's technically right. But these students walk away, um, whatever these students walk away with, it's certainly not that that guy loved me a lot. Yeah. Like, like that guy cared about me. They don't even you know, what I mean? know me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like that guy was a better debater than me um, and is kind of a jerk. Yeah. You know? And it's like, what do, what do we win? Like, what's the point? You right. know? So right. anyway, sorry, I kind of went on a tangent. No, no, no that's, that's think, all good. I think, yeah, I was about to say, I think that's a really good point. And I think. One of the other, um, and I'll tell me what y'all think about this, but one of the other issues that I've seen with apologetics for such a long time 
at least as long as I've been a believer for the last like, you know, uh, 10 years or what or whatnot um, is like it's all scientific and it's and epistemological ish. Um, but there but we really have never like tapped into like cultural apologetics. Yeah. So, so like, you know, kind of switching it up and like moving it to like, Hey, like, um, a lot of, a lot of, cause I think a, a lot of times what was happening was the felt need was actually, Hey, like, um, I don't think this Christianity is like good for society or for the world, mm-hmm. or I've experienced church trauma or hurt yep. Yep. or like, you know, like, um, I, you know, I wasn't loved well in my youth group. My youth pastor assaulted me or hurt me or whatever. And then what they get is scientific apologetics about how God is real. And uh, here's the argument for how he created the world and, and, you know, so on and so forth. And I'm like, well, well, what about like what I feel like is a lot more at the core felt need of so many people who are deconstructing and it's, does this faith have relevance for my personal life and for society writ large? And I think that is such a more important topic. For instance, um, you know, Eric Mason just recently put out um, the book um, Urban Apologetics. Mm. And I'm like, that field is so untouched, so unstudied (laughs) that a guy just put out a book saying the name of the field yeah. <laughs> like, you know, just, man, that title had not been taken yeah yeah it's <laughs> just yeah. like that's clearly a problem and i think i would love to see so much more of that because i think then it's going to be a lot harder to sound like a jerk when you're trying to make the argument that there's been a theme in the bible of caring for the poor and the disenfranchised and the orphan and the widow and the immigrant um, it's going to be a lot harder to actually have the posture. Of course, people will find a way to do it, but to have the posture of kind of this obtuse, you know, stoic jerk as you're engaging people, letting them know, hey, no, this God is good and he's got yeah. big plans for yeah. creation and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think you're spot on, man. Of all the people that I know that have walked away from their faith, not one of them was because um, they couldn't intellectually believe in the resurrection anymore. Mm-hmm. Like none of it, but it was that the church is producing so many wounded people mm-hmm. that the church was just hurting so many people that they said at some point, I don't know. Like, I don't think this is what love looks like, you know? And, yeah. and to, to some degree, I think that, I would, guys, I think I would still be a fundamentalist if fundamentalism had simply played by its own rules. Yeah. Mm. So, so like I, you know, we, we learned so many good things growing up at church, like God is love and God is, God forgives everyone. And, you know, God's love is bigger than any of our sin. And, but yet the people who we said have sin, we rarely had like an outward showing of love for them. Right. They, they were an enemy to be conquered. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, no, I'm totally with you. Like the, the, 
the greatest ap- apology for Christianity is love is, and, and I think radical love, like w- love that the world rarely sees, like uh, forgiving our enemies and laying our lives down for each other. Like, I think that that's the greatest apologetic. And you know, if people, it, it would be so interesting. Like I want to live in the world where uh, people say like, you know, I can't believe in that Christian stuff, the resurrection and virgin births and stuff like that. But man, those Christians really like the Christians in my life. Like they, I could tell they really love me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I want to live in that world where if people don't believe, it's not because Christians are jerks. It's because whatever, some intellectual problem you can't get right. over. You know, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm curious, Shane, as you've been. I mean, you've interviewed. I, I mean, my hero. Rest in peace to. Um, to the late, you know, Rachel Held Evans. I mean, she was another one that just, once again, I just felt like she gave me so much freedom when I read her stuff. And even when I just followed her on social media, it was so tragic losing her a few years back. But I mean, you've interviewed so many amazing people, um, so many different types of thinkers. Um, I've listened to, you know, your deal with uh, uh, with Greg Boyd. It was around the election. Yeah. yeah. And y'all had a really great conversation about that. And um, how how do you feel like, you know, and this is not really on the deconstruction topic, but I think just more on just out of my own personal curiosity of of where of, of kind of where your trajectory is and has gone. But like, how do you feel like your um theological convictions um have uh shifted as you've engaged with such a, a large swath of different um thinkers scholars writers so on and so forth yeah so that's a great question i think there are a few like specific things where i can say like i used to believe x now i believe y like uh, with hell for instance and we can we talk about that if we want but um and then there's a lot more of like kind of uh general you know shifts like even you know i'm ashamed to say like until i read uh surprise by hope by nt right like i didn't understand that like the, i i believe the old like uh you know, go to heaven when you die. Yeah, you're right. We go to heaven when we die, right? Instead of like the more biblical, you know, heaven's great, but it's not the end of the world. Yeah, you know exactly. Um, <laughs> and and it's like that's consistently that's the number one misconception I yeah. see from people who you know love the Bible and read it all the time. And now, it, in hindsight, it seems obvious to me. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't know. It's it's so ingrained in our culture and in our right, yeah. psyche of like what the afterlife looks like. Um, but it's kind of embarrassing for so many um, Bible believing Christians who, who I would argue sometimes elevate the Bible too highly to be sometimes more influenced by medieval theology. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for sure. More like, it, like you're right. Our conception of the afterlife is really more based off like Dante's Inferno than it is the Bible. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and that's a good example of the thing I was talking about of where you could say like, well, how consequential is that? Just some belief about the afterlife. But uh, no, if I believe that the things I do right now have actual like ramifications for eternity and also that this 
this hunk of clay we're standing on is actually the real place where we're going to spend eternity, mm-hmm. then it might change the way I feel about, for instance, uh, nature and mm-hmm. creation. Whereas if I all believe this is going away someday, then we can just use and abuse it uh, you know, as much as we want, Absolutely. right? We can, we can burn it up and if it's unusable, then who cares? Cause it's all going away mm-hmm. uh, anyway, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, but if I believe that, nope, this stuff matters, this the stuff we do here matters cause we're going to be here for a while. Then um, that, that shifts in the way you actually live your life today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. So we've talked a lot about um, your interactions in the public sphere with authors, theologians, and and how that has impacted you personally. Um, but another thing we want to kind of end this series with is what what are some ways that people who are deconstructing, I, th- I think we've given them a lot of things to think about and a lot of uh, resources, um, but there's also kind of a pastoral element to deconstruction. I think as someone who's gone through that phase one of the biggest struggles that I had was that I felt alone, um, that I couldn't really trust the pastors in my church, or I couldn't really, the the friends that I did reach out to, many of whom were in full-time ministry, just didn't understand the questions that I had. Um, There was just a level of, um, that my struggle was, they just couldn't empathize with it, and they could only give kind of a, a either a theoretical idea of, you know, like, Oh, just, just like trust God and like lean into relationship with him where it's like, Oh, well, my whole problem is that God feels hidden to me. Right. Um, And so so what are some, some ways that you think we could improve as the church in being more pastoral when it comes to deconstruction and walking alongside those who are wrestling with their faith and asking big questions without belittling them, without, um, negating their emotions and their experience. Um, but also while providing, um, a response that's helpful, that kind of guides them to a place of health. Yeah, man, that's good. Um, you know, a lot of times I hear people who have gone through deconstruction or going through it and they kind of have that complaint of like, you know, I wasn't allowed to ask the, these questions. And the, when I was given answers, they were really shallow and trite. And I don't know, like the weird thing for me is like, I've been detached from that Christianity for so long that I forget that it exists sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I had, I remember this one time when I was uh, at a previous church, I was pastoring and I was having lunch with a guy who is the pastor at the big church in town. And he was a great guy and I, I loved him. And he was, he was good to me because we were at a, this tiny, tiny church, you know, and he treated me as an equal, but you know, we're, we're having lunch and he admitted something to me. He was like, you know, no, it's not really cool for a pastor to say this. And um, I don't remember what specifically what it was, but I remember being like, um, I said the same thing like from the pulpit last week. Yeah. Like, like you're saying to this to me in private with a little bit of guilt and like I said that in front of everybody. And I'm kind of like, maybe I shouldn't have. Like, um, and so I I would just encourage people to surround themselves with people for whom it is okay to ask those questions and to to be real about stuff. And I I you know, I want to be careful there because I think there's a there's also a 
there's a thing that happens where we always think that like the next church is going to have no problems and and Mm -hmm. all churches have problems. My church has problems. We have problems, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But I do, but there is a time where we can say, and maybe it's even that you're not even, it's not that you don't go to church there, but you seek out people with whom that are believers that will support you. um, But that will let you ask the questions and not just give you easy answers. Mm -hmm. And, but the other side of that too, is like, I don't recommend you get around people who just want to, um, let you spin out in endless deconstruction too, or just want to tear everything down. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To just tear everything down. So, Get around those communities and remember, remember that we, I'm so big on this. We are not the first people to have these questions. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I read the, um, I've tried to get into reading like the church fathers. Yeah. It is bonkers. The similarities of the things that they're thinking through and talking through that are what we are thinking through and yeah. going through now. Mm-hmm. There is not a new problem. Sometimes I'll mm-hmm. see an article from like the gospel coalition or something that says something about the deconstruction phenomenon that's been happening lately. And it's, it's like, no, it's just been recently that we've been calling it that. But yeah, I mean, we've had people deconstructing their faith since Peter and Thomas, like the early disciples of Christ were asking Mm -hmm. big questions. Um, and, 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 you know, some of them, there were disciples that when Jesus said, um, if you want to follow me, you need to, eat my flesh and drink my blood. They said, okay, cool. Don't like that idea. I'm out of here. Yeah. Um, and then when Peter, when Jesus asked Peter, are you going to do the same thing? He says, where else can I go Lord? Yeah. And so it's not that he has an answer. It's not that he's like, oh yeah, I'm like really excited to eat your flesh and drink your blood. Cause that would be really weird. Yeah. Um, Peter's like, yeah, that was weird, but I'm still in this because I think it's worth it. That's good. Y- yeah. And you know what? I'm thinking, I love, that's such a beautiful example from scripture. And I think because obviously Peter's faith wasn't perfect, but the center of Jesus, of Peter's faith was Jesus. Yes. And so when we make the center of our faith, anything but Jesus, it goes awry. And even Mm -hmm. if it's the Bible, like, and I, I really like, I still believe in the authority of scripture. I'm still a Bible guy. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't let me downplay that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are, there are places where they elevate the Bible to the third, uh, for the fourth person of the Trinity, you yeah. know? And, mm-hmm. um, and it, it's also a, usually a wrong conception of the Bible. Like, like the way that um, we were taught the Bible, a lot of times you would have thought it just kind of fell from heaven in, in its current form, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that gets problematic when, you know, our kids go to college or whatever, and they take a class and they learn that the Bible, it wasn't, it didn't happen that way, you know? Yeah. And so like I, we try really at our church, we try really hard to, um, we want to be the people who teach our kids that stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. So that like, when, for instance, like a couple of weeks ago, I was preaching and talked a little bit, just a little bit about how, um, you know, the gospel of Mark is the earliest gospel. It was written about 70 AD, you know? And so 
Um, if you one, you know, if you think that it fell from heaven, like that's that's problematic that it was written in 70 AD. But also if you think that like the disciples uh, you know, hung out with Jesus and then every night they wrote in their journal and that's what the gospels came to be. Like, yeah, that's problematic too. Right. And so again, if you're learning that for the first time in college or something like that, especially by someone who's antagonistic towards Christianity, that can be faith destroying. We Mm -hmm. want our people to learn that in church. So, you know, Mm so we were talking about, you know, Mark 70 AD, um, you know, this is probably, so it's about 40 years after Jesus has died. And so we talked about, you know, well, 40 years ago from now, that was like the challenger explosion. You yeah. know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it's like, um, there are plenty of people who were around when the challenger exploded, you know, who could tell us if we got something wrong, they could come to us and be like, no, that's not actually how it happened, you know? Yeah. And so mm-hmm. anyway, what I'm getting at is, I want my kids and I want the people in our church to learn the truth, whatever the truth is. I want them to learn it from us. Yes. And so that when, you know, if some smug college professor goes, hey, these gospels weren't even written until decades later. And my kids can be like, yeah, but so what? <laughs> like, yeah. What, exactly. what impact do you think that has on my faith? You know? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. The classic so, God's dot. God's not dead. Exactly situation. right. Yeah. yeah. Enter Kevin Zorbo. Yeah. Hey, there's a new, there's a new movie coming. I won't be watching it, but it is coming. Is Another, it God's not dead four? <laughs> still not dead. Yeah. 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 Too dead, too dead. furious. This time know. it's personal. <laughs> but, but you know, what's so interesting though, um, because unfortunately so much of this stuff comes from um certain wings of uh, the protestant uh church and and a lot of it from like really hardcore calvinists um and reformers and i'm just like guys i don't know if y'all realize like what led to the reformation was a lot of deconstruction exactly. it was people who were deconstructing the world around them to the point where Martin Luther actually was like, let me read the Bible and like, see <laughs> like what's going on here. Like, and like, see if it's lining up with what I'm ostensibly experiencing um, in the Catholic church. And so it, it's, it's like, this is, I think why I've loved this series so much and have loved having all the different, you know, um, guests on in these conversations. Cause I'm like, this is the kind of stuff that leads to really healthy shifts in the church when we begin to ask questions and when we congregate amongst each other and uh, provide resources and answers and all of a sudden you come out with something that's that's uh, more pure I mean I, I'm I'm a big fan of high church and a big fan of the Catholic Church hear me but at that time the Catholic Church was not um, healthy and because Martin Luther and William Tyndale and those guys asked questions, like ultimately we got a healthier expression of Christianity. And so the reason I'm excited not only about the series, but about a lot of the deconstructing is honestly, a lot of what's been happening in Christianity in American Christianity and in the West period for a while needs to be deconstructed. Um, I grew up my whole life with this understanding of like America being a Christian nation. And I'm like, you know, in some of our circles, you know, people that think like the three of us is this is kind of like, it's kind of a common sense thing now. But it's like, that is impossible. 
for God to run parallel with genocide and slavery and sexism and homophobia and wealth inequality and po- like that's impossible with the God that we get in scripture. And so, so much of this stuff needed to be deconstructed. And I think um, because of God's kindness and his grace and his spirit, and um, because of us being faithful enough to ask questions and trust him and lean on him, um, I think we're going to get a much healthier, beautiful brand of Christianity that's coming. And so I actually praise God that we're answering these questions because throughout church history or asking these questions, because throughout church history, when we've asked really good questions, um, for the most part, it has led to God doing some amazing things and genuine revival. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, Yeah, I think that um, we. So I, I mentioned that that book, uh, "The Benefit of the Doubt." One of his central thesis is that we, uh, a lot of times, what we're doing is we're not really um, worshiping Jesus; we're worshiping certainty, mm-hmm. and the certainty is not served us well. And so, yeah, that's the thesis of uh, Peter N's book, The Sin of Certainty. Yeah, right. Yeah, played I've that heard... same role in in my journey. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I haven't read that, but I've heard the exact same thing. So, uh, you know, certainty it cuts us off from, um, from from the truth. Really, you know, if if uh, to go to your example, Josh, you know, if Martin Luther had had locked on to certainty of what the Catholic church was teaching right then back then we couldn't. Right. And so mm-hmm. there are so many people who they've really, they've latched onto a certainty about Christianity and it's a certain version about Christianity. And they've been taught to that, to reconsider anything else is unfaithful. Mm. And, but that's, that's not true. God, God gave us brains for a reason. Um, and, and what we're doing is we're worshiping the certainty rather than worshiping, uh, Jesus. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so we, that's where the title of the book comes from. The benefit of the doubt. Mm -hmm. We, the doubt actually helps us be more faithful people. And the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty, right? Mm -hmm. Because doubt is actually required to have faith. Absolutely. That's so good. Yeah, that was that was a big game changer for me a few years ago when that clicked for me as I was reading Peter N's book. Um, And he even uses the argument of I mean, it's an exegetical argument. If you look at the New Testament and you look at how Paul uses the Greek word pistis, which means faith. Yeah. yeah. when, When you're looking at how he uses it, it's always faith in Jesus, not faith in doctrine, not faith in theology, not faith in ideas or or you know, any of those, it's always faith in Jesus, the person. And he uses the analogy like when we, um, and I think plenty of people use this analogy in real life, when we say, oh, I trust someone, um, that doesn't mean that I like believe this list of facts about them. Um, you trust them because you have a relationship with them and you may not even know anything about someone, but you can trust them enough to, to, especially when you can't accomplish something especially children children don't know anything about their parents they don't even have a framework of how the 
their parents' world works. Right. And yet they can trust them to yep. be their caregiver and to guide them uh, and to provide for them. Um, you know, real quick on, on just to piggyback off that. I don't know if I've said this on this podcast yet, but um, it's interesting. Carl Ellis Jr., Dr. Carl Ellis Jr., um, talked, uh, he, he said something in a talk that he gave at a conference I was at. He was leading a breakout that really struck me the first time I've heard it because it's so um, counter to everything that especially the three of us would have learned growing up. But he was like, every judgment scene that we see, New and Old Testament, the 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 big question that's asked or like the, the litmus test or the basis, it's always ethical. And it was, you know, of course, with our kind of anti-works, you know, law versus grace background, when he said that, I was kind of jarred, you know, but when he explained it, it made so much sense. He was like, the idea is not when you get before the Lord, hey, did you believe all these facts about me? The idea, very similar to what you guys are saying, is did you trust me? And in trusting me, here was an expression of like, I love this Jesus. I trust this Jesus. And the natural expression is just like he came to the margins to rescue me. I'm going to go to the margins, not as a savior or a rescuer, but as someone who's going to go show solidarity and advocacy for those who are on the margins. Um, And therefore that expression of that trust is going to come out ethically, but it's, but, but, and even though most reformers would, you know, kind of, you know, give like a surface, like head nod to that of like, yeah, yeah, sure. It's, you know, your, your faith is, is shown by the works that you do. It's interesting that to, to, to Carl Ellis's point, the litmus test when you stand before the Lord is never, did you check all the boxes of these dogmas? <laughs> you know what I mean? The litmus yeah. test when you're before the Lord is, were you on, you know, were you on team me and did you trust and love me? And and that's what's most important. And Joel, that's a great example of like, yeah, when I'm a child, I don't know a bunch of dogma facts about my parents. I just I still don't know I, facts about my parents. I yeah. find out new stuff about their yeah, backstory right. like every time I hang well, out with them. You know, that the, this illustration really brings out something really important because if it's about being able to sign off on certain dogmas and don't get me wrong. Like I think it's really important to, you know, affirm a lot of things, you know, apostles creed and all that stuff. But if that's what is necessary for salvation, where does that leave? Where does that leave little children? Yeah. Right. Where does that leave little children? Where does it leave uh, those with uh, developmental disabilities? Right. Right. Who can't, who don't have the, the, um, you know, the, the ability to, conceptualize all these dogmas, right? Like Mm -hmm. where does, where does that leave them? So we have to have some kind of theology where Jesus can meet them where they are and they have everything they need. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. if they, you've got to be able to, um, the people who ride on the plane need no understanding of how the plane works to still ride on the plane. Right. You know, that's it. it. No, that, that's great. You know, and, and as I've, I've been having these conversations for years at this point now, and I'm sure you have as well. And, and Josh, you as well. Something I run into is the phenomenon of the people who 
are really earnest, but they just don't get it. So they're not like combative towards people who are deconstructing, but they they really just love Jesus and they don't have any problems doing that. And they yeah, can function. they don't really have struggle with doubt or right. anything. It's kind of all the answers are good enough for them. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I I don't know what it's like to be that person. <laughs> um uh, you know, that'd be, that'd be cool, I guess. But I sometimes run into some of those people who are really eager and they want to help. They want to be there for their friends who are deconstructing, but they just don't know how. Um, And so I'm wondering if you have any insight on how people can be allies, maybe to use to um, those who are really wrestling. If they don't have, if they don't wrestle themselves and they're not, they may not even be in a formal pastoral position. They just have friends who are, struggling and they don't know how to help they can just model their spiritual life and say hey this works for me but it doesn't i don't know why it's not working for you um and it, and how can they be a safe space to talk about it because people who are deconstructing mm-hmm. often don't feel safe yeah so i guess i would say to those people um recognize when you're in over your head if someone is telling you that they're dealing with this stuff and you don't get it and you don't understand what the problem is, um, that's okay. Um, but just snap out of it is not going to be a helpful answer. Mm. Right. Um, and then, and then try answers and, and it may be that the answers that are, that work for you, are obviously not going to work for them. So yeah. be careful about just dispensing those answers yeah. to them. And and so maybe connect them or encourage them to find people who who can meet with them on their level. Yeah. If that makes sense. And and I would I would say something to to the people who maybe who are listening who are deconstructing. A lot of times people who go through deconstruction it is like there is a bloody stump of a wound on their body. Mm. And, and when you are, when you're hurt to that degree, um, everything is raw. That's the word that comes Mm. to mind. It's raw, you know? And, and when you're, if I'm walking around with the bloody stump, you know, on the end of my, my arm, you could touch me on my shoulder, the opposite shoulder, which is nowhere near the bloody stump, but I'm so raw. It's like, Mm. don't, don't touch me, you know? Yeah. Like, like that feels painful and I'm going to react, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so, and I think we may, we probably all know people who've gone through deconstruction that is like that, you know, yeah. where it's like, you're just trying to pat them on the back and it's like, don't, don't do that. They're, yeah. they're a little bit prickly. Right. 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 Mm-hmm. And so, and in one, no judgment to those people because the wounds are real. Yeah. The wounds Ooh, are real. And the pain is real. And so, one, we can't shame those people who are going through that because their felt needs are their felt needs. It is what it is. And so we don't need to talk them out of it. It's not really that bad. You know, you know, I see. Yeah, you say you're you're gushing blood, you know, but it, it's not really that bad. You're being a little dramatic. Like none of that's yeah. helpful, you know. So respect where they are, wherever that is. Um, and. And so it may be, you know, if you're in that position where you don't identify with anything they're going through, that all you need to do is just to be a listening ear. Mm, and and that mm-hmm. all you need to do is say, that sounds really hard. Yeah. Mm. That sounds really hard. 
And so, but for people who maybe you've gone through deconstruction yourself, like maybe you're able to help walk them down that path a little bit farther, right? But knowing if you're that person and if you're not is really important. And so, you know, like I've said, like a lot of times, all I'm saying is like, this book really helped me when I was in your position and, and I think it would help you. And, you know, let's let, let's let God and let the Holy Spirit take it from there. One of the things that I've really come to believe in the last several years is this idea that God cares about it more than I do. Right. Um, and so it's not all on my shoulders when things like that happen, that if we believe the Holy Spirit is active and working and, and it cares about that person's faith more than I do, then it's not all up to me. And I just, I just need to be faithful in whatever that circumstances. Yeah. I was scared to death of, uh, going public with my deconstruction story and, and talk, even talking about the topic, even theoretically, I mean, Josh knows like we had a whole maybe six months of planning for this series because I was, I really wanted to get it right. Um, and it was so personal to me, but then when we we're actually executing the series, I got so much positive feedback about mm-hmm. people who were saying, yeah, me too. Like, that's my story. Thanks for sharing that. Um, and people who are, you know, confiding in me about their own journey, having that dialogue, I realized like, oh, there's actually something really beautiful and pastoral here about being able to be vulnerable and share, um, this really hard season that I went through. I was really scared to share it because I was afraid at the time of the pushback that I could receive or, or maybe even rejection from certain communities, um, and and so maybe it was good timing that the release of this series, I, I moved to a new city and I was starting over with my spiritual communities. Mm. Um, but yeah, a lot of people, especially those who are in full-time ministry, really can't struggle in public. And it's, it's I mean, they're, they're in a position where their job, their livelihood is contingent on them not uh, wrestling with their faith. Do you have anything to say to that? Yeah, I mean, not not anything other than like we need to cultivate communities in which it's okay to be honest about our doubts. And and I, you know, I don't know exactly what that's always going to look like. You know, if, if, um, you know, I'm not, I don't know if I'm advocating for the like the, pastor to come out on Easter morning and say, I don't believe in the resurrection anymore. Or like, I, I, you know, I'm struggling with the doubt, but like, but what needs to, where there does need to be able to happen is that pastor needs to be able to take some time off and like, and work through some things. Yeah. Right. You know, and does need to have someone preferably within that church body that they can be completely vulnerable with. Yeah. Um, I think that so much of like the, the moral failings that have gone in the church. We were talking about Mark Driscoll before we started the interview. And uh, I think about Bill Hybels, um, you know, Mark Driscoll, Bill Hybels, like you within Christianity, you don't get people who are much different theologically. Um, But I think that they had isolated themselves so much. And what I mean by that is that uh, they're on such a pedestal that they had no peers Right. Mm. They had no peers that they could go to and and say, you know, I'm struggling with this or and they also had no peers that could go to them and say, I'm seeing some problems in you the way you're behaving. You know, like there was no one that could call them out. Um, And so they were isolated. And so I, I really think that we need communities 
um, in which we can one hold, hold each other accountable where there is no one that's on a pedestal by themselves, but that we can be open about our doubts and talk about those. And that can be kind of normal, uh, normal stuff. You know, uh, I mentioned that I'm on a, a pastoral team and it's me and another woman in our church. And like the lead team knows, or we know that the lead team can, um, uh, they can check in on our spouses anytime. Mm-hmm. So if if I'm misbehaving or if April's misbehaving, our pastors, I mean, our, our spouses um, can be honest with our lead team about that yeah. at any time. Like they, that permission has been given. Mm-hmm. And so um, there's, there's this built in accountability. We're not allowed to isolate in that way. Yeah. We yeah. build, we build that into our structures. That's so good. Amazing. And, that, and that's a huge, it's kind of what we were talking about before the episode is we were talking about Mark Driscoll is, is the, yes, you know, I think it's, I think it's safe to say after all the research and even after the public persona that we got for so long, Mark was a jerk, but there was an infrastructure that was a lot more of the problem Yeah, yeah. Um, with what eventually led to that collapse. And, and, you know, I'm 29. I don't, I don't know anything. But 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 I have to throw this out here. Just like, yes, I think you're 100 percent right. I, I don't I don't think it, it's super healthy for a congregation to be sitting there on Sunday morning and a pastor come up and say, "Hey, I don't think I believe in the resurrection." Um, but I I do think there needs to be space for a pastor to get up in front of everyone and say, "There's a lot of research on X topic, and I'm not sure." Yep. Yep. That's right. Yep. You know what I mean? I, I just really want for there to be a space for that because as a as a congregant, as a you know, if I were a lay congregant at a church, I would probably have read a couple of the books that that pastor is referring to. And I and I may or may not be a little bit more sure on that. Mm-hmm. But, man, what a blessing it would be for my pastor to stand up in front of everyone on whatever topic, you know, of course, tactfully um, and say, hey, I'm not sure. Because that just that I think as a congregate, that would give me so much freedom to come up to him or her and say, oh, I'm not sure about why. Can we talk about that? Like, you know, you're not sure about X. I'm not sure about Y. Let's talk about it. Yeah. 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 And, you know, if I can give you an example of something that we've that's kind of weird that we've done at Austin Mustard Seed is a couple of years ago, we were preaching through um, sacraments and things like that. And we. um so we talked about baptism, right? And I grew up Baptist. So we obviously, we believe in believer's baptism when you, whatever point in time, someone quote unquote accepts Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they get baptized or whatever. Not not infant baptism. Um, I r- read this book by Scott McKnight that was uh, a basically, he's, he's Anglican, um, but wasn't always... And he wrote this book about uh, it, basically infant baptism and how he came to believe in infant baptism and is here's the biblical reasons for that. Uh, really kind of changed the way that I yeah. thought about it, yeah. you know? Um, and I said, so I, you know, I went to my co-pastor and we talked about it. And so <laughs> during that sermon, I was like, you know, I, I still really get how people look at it and say, nope. Only only when someone comes to a, mm-hmm. a point in trusting Jesus should they get baptized. And I also see why people could say no infants should be baptized. And so 
Um, I mean, I'm super on the fence. Neither one of my, both of my kids had been born at that point. So we, they've not been baptized. So I guess with them, we're going to do believers baptism because uh, have to. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. we, we missed the boat on being born. Right. Yeah. No, yeah. Um, but, but so at Austin mustard seed, um, we do it both ways. Yeah. If someone says, I really would like my newborn to be baptized and we, this is what it means to us. Um, we will do it. And if they if they come with their kid who's you know seven eight or nine and they've come to a, a point in uh, having faith in Christ, then we'll do believers baptism. And so, yeah. like we've been like very open handed with that, you know. And luckily, our people have too. The people who have real deep convictions about believers baptism have been um, graceful, you mm-hmm. know, to us to say, okay, you can do that too, and we'll we'll still stick around, right? Yeah. You know. Yeah. So, you know, on that exact same note, I was at church this Sunday. I've been uh, attending an Anglican community recently and they announced that, oh, yeah, at the end of the month on our our parish retreat, we're going to have baptisms. So if you're 10 or older and you've um, come to believe in Jesus and you want to um, demonstrate and share that faith with others, we'd we'd love to have like a baptism experience. Um, and then the next week we're going to have infant baptisms. And I was like, Whoa, it, it blew my mind. I like never <laughs> thought you could do both. Yeah. <laughs> it just like, right. wasn't a category. I just always assumed that the credo Baptist and the pedo Baptist were just at perpetual war with each other, but yeah. you can have it both yeah. ways. Yeah, that's right. And we can, and we can say, you know, the, we can be honest about, this is at least how I feel about it. I don't think the Bible is super clear either way. Yeah. And, and I, that's okay. And that's okay. I don't think that God's going to be super angry at us if we, if, if, if it, it there is a way and we didn't do it that way, I think God's in his grace and mercy going to be okay with yeah. that. Yeah. Well, Shane, thanks so much for your thoughts and for coming on the podcast. Um, we usually like to reserve this space for you to share whatever resources that you're working on, um, however you would like to connect to our community, whether that be through Twitter or promoting your book. So yeah, I'd love to give you the floor and just share what's the best way for people to connect with you and and to, um, to learn more about what you have to say. Well, thanks guys. That's really generous. Um, I guess I'm, I'm kind of everywhere. I'm on Facebook and Twitter, uh, Instagram, if that's your thing. Uh, my main podcast is one we've mentioned, Seminary Dropout. I do have an additional one called On Ramp that's about racial justice through the lens of Christianity, if anybody's uh, up for that. That is not an ongoing podcast. We kind of do it one season at a time. And uh, we just kind of, uh, after we're done with the season, we're not necessarily going to keep going unless we feel like at some later time there's more that we want to talk about. But anyway, that's out there. Um, the book that... I'm, uh, again, like I said, hopefully coming out with, it's like at, with the publisher right now being edited. I'm at the point now where I'm like getting endorsements. So hopefully by the end of the year or maybe next year, um, that'll be out. But I guess for now, I would just say, just, you know, follow me on one of those, uh, Twitter, Facebook, and I'll for sure let you know about it. Then, uh, that'll be out then. So yeah. yeah. Thanks. Great. Well, yeah. Thanks for coming on the show. We really enjoyed having you and, and it's it's kind of awesome. You're definitely our most uh, most experienced guest when it comes to podcasting. <laughs> I mean, you've you've podcasted probably ten times more than both Josh and I combined. 
So yeah, this with, is with really podcasting, it's like it's like dog years, right? Like I've been in a podcast for like eight years. That's like eighty years in podcasting. Exactly. Years, you know? Yeah, is, I've been at it, it for one year, and I'm like yeah. sending out tutorials to people. Yeah. Well, see, so I that's my other. You mean well, you do know about this. I I have a podcasting course and the, I wrote the entire course because people kept asking me how to podcast. Yeah. I'm like, so now I could just send them a link. Like, here yeah. you go. As a, as a student of the course, actually as a dropout of the course, <laughs> I can I'm only fair. recommend it. Yeah. Shane's the seminary awesome. dropout. I'm the, uh, Shane Blackshear podcasting for everyone. Dropout. dropout. Nice. <laughs> That's amazing. Shane, it was, uh, it was such a gift to have you. I've, I've, I've enjoyed, uh, your podcast, um, w- one particular episode I really enjoyed a lot was the sermon you did on women's ordination. I oh. thought that one was really great, and I was so blessed by it. And so, yeah, it's such a it was such a gift to have you on, and, and thanks for all your your wisdom and and thoughts. And I think they're I think they're going to be really beneficial and uh, helpful for people as they as they navigate either deconstruction or. Uh, relationships with friends and family who are deconstructing. Well, thanks, Josh. Um, you guys are doing something really special here, I think. And this is uh, definitely one of my favorite uh, interviews that I've been on the the receiving end on. So you guys are doing some really good stuff here. And it's been an honor to be with you. Yeah. Well, listeners, thanks for listening, as always. And this has been season six of the Moral Minority Show, where we've discussed deconstruction Um, We'll be working behind the scenes on planning out our next season, as well as giving some special bonus episodes on some lighter, more fun topics. So stay tuned for that and be sure to um, follow us on social media. We've officially launched our Instagram. It's at moral.minority. And so be sure to follow there. We'll be promoting the deconstruction season as well as kind of um, doing some throwbacks to previous seasons as well. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Minority Show. And um, if you have a response, you can DM us on Instagram or Twitter, or you can send an email to themoralminorityshow at gmail.com. So thanks for listening and stay tuned. Bye.